You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you've got your Bible there, please turn to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23. We're finishing out our series today in the book of Joshua together. New start, same God. We began this the first Sunday after we came back, after uh, we were reopened again, and uh, we're delighted that we can finish out this series uh, today. And as we skip to the end of this book of Joshua, as we jump from chapter 10 last week to chapter 23 this week, we left Joshua and the Israelites last week in awe at the mighty intervention of God in the hurling of those hailstones and the stopping of the sun on its course in order for them to save their allies and defeat the combined forces of the five kings of the Amorites. Even if you've got your Bible there, and I hope you do, between chapters 11 and 22, even have a quick look at the headings are there. They're very informative between chapters 11 and 22. You have an ongoing record there of military success, which enables Joshua to begin parceling out the land, sharing out the inheritance of the, the land to the people. It's incredible, isn't it? They've been waiting for this to happen from Genesis chapter 12. From Abraham, this one man plucked from obscurity, promised this whole promised land. And now here's this group of people, well over a million in total. And they're being parceled out their little farmland each. A fulfillment of God's great promises. Time has lapsed. Distance is covered. The disobedience along the way, the disruption during the time in Egypt, the distress, 40 years in the desert, defeat at the hands of the enemies had not stopped God's promised plan of salvation. And as we draw alongside Joshua here in Joshua 23 verse 1, do you see him there with the white hair flowing, the limbs weakening, the eyes dimming, body failing, but his memory is strong. His memory is strong. This Joshua, who survived the death of the firstborn on the night of the Passover, escaped from Egypt with his family, stood with Moses as the nation rebelled against God, the one who encountered God on the mountain, the one who saw his, his army defeated when the Achan sin was uncovered, the Joshua had witnessed with his own eyes in his old age the fulfillment of all that God had promised. Laid out before him, do you see in verse 4? North, south, east, and west, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, the Lord had been faithful, and he wants to gather the elders and the leaders of Israel around him. And in fact, it rolls on to the whole assembly of Israel in chapter 24. And he reminds them, first of all, today, God has fought for you. Don't forget him. God has fought for you. Don't forget him. Joshua might be elderly by this stage, but God's goodness has not failed him. As his vast and beautiful land stretches out before him, he's led in wonder and love and praise to his Savior God, whom he credits. Have a look even just quickly in your Bibles here. Verse 3, he credits God with victory over the nations. Verse 4, an inheritance promised from long ago. Verse 3 again, he says, it's the Lord that has fought for you. Verse 5, the Lord has pushed out the enemy. Verse 5 again, the Lord has given you this good land. Verse 10, the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. Now remember, it's just been 60 years. That's not a long period of time. Just 60 years before, this was a people with no rights, no privileges, 
They were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. They were making bricks without straw. They were beaten and broken. And here they are now living in houses they hadn't built. They're farming land they hadn't planted. They're caring for livestock they hadn't reared. They're eating from vines they hadn't nurtured. They're enjoying every good thing that they had not worked for. It wasn't Israel's bravado that had won the day. It was God's power. The victories, the land, being settled and comfortable was not down to their greatness or their ingenuity, but it was all down to God's overflowing kindness. This, my friend, in Union Road today is what God does for his people. He promises victory and gifts of grace from his hand that none of us could ever earn. Joshua wants the people of this new land to know this God, the God who fights for them. You see, despite what critics of the Christian faith say, we don't have a blind faith. You've heard that, haven't you? Or you just have a blind faith. We aren't people who hope in the dark, that we hope what we know is true. We just can't, oh, we just hope it's all right. We're hanging out that this might be real. We are not asked to believe blindly, but we are asked to trust a God who acts in history. The Israelites had reason to believe in God and trust his promises. They had seen him at work. I mean, imagine seeing the sun stand still and wonder why it wasn't setting, or seeing your enemies defeated before you as the hailstones the size of bricks rain down without you even having to lift a sword from your sheath. And you've won. They were where they are because God had fought for them. And so Joshua's reminding them, don't forget, don't forget. Don't forget you're God's people. He fights for you. He's on your side. He's your savior. And this isn't just an Old Testament joy. This is what the New Testament confirms and substantiates. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, these amazing words. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. God's promises fulfilled. The Corinthians had only been Christians, some of them maybe for a matter of months, at the most a couple of years, but they had already forgotten that God had come to earth to fight for them. They'd forgotten the Jesus who gave his life for them. And Paul needed to remind them of these things that were of first importance. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. But you see, 1 Corinthians 15 does not end there, does it? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 to 56 goes on. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Jesus' resurrection, if I can put it this way, was God the Father's amen, absolutely, to Jesus' cry from the cross three days before, it is finished. It is finished. It's that one Greek word that you'll have heard before, tetelestai. Let me explain what that word really means. 
It had been used in ancient times when a couple, for example, had been paying off a hefty mortgage on a home, say, for 50, 60 years in a beautiful house in Jerusalem, went into the broker, and now in their retirement, lay down the last 200 denarii, and they cry out, Tetelestai! It's finished! After 60 years of paying all this mortgage, it's done! Nothing more to add! Nothing more to bring! It's now ours! But Jesus said that to us and for us. It's finished. Christian friend, there's nothing more you need to bring. Nothing more you need to add. It's paid, complete, written off. Every debt settled. Jesus' resurrection confirms that sin is paid for completely, that his battle with Satan and death and hell was won, and the fear that lurks within all us as Christians is eliminated that his sacrifice was complete and that our salvation is eternally credible. It is finished. The reality is that now, finally, truly, it is ours. We receive it. And we receive a future that we hadn't worked for, a forgiveness that none of us could ever earn, a home in heaven that we could never achieve, and a place in a family that's far wealthier and glorious and more loving than we could ever imagine. The Bible says to us today, look at what God has done in history. Remember his acts. Build your life on these things. The Bible does not abandon evidence. This is no blind faith. It is built not just on reason, but on the dead, now resurrected Jesus. And all too often as believers, we separate ourselves from God's actions on our behalf. We detach ourselves from who we are, and that's when we get anxious and angry and upset. When we get bad news, when we've had a rocky week at work, when we're worried about ourselves or other loved ones, or something goes wrong with us, or a decision goes against us, and we end up asking, doesn't God care? Why isn't he acting? Why isn't he jumping into this mess and sorting it out right now? To which he says, don't distance me from you. If you are my child and your faith is in me, I am in you and you already have won. Your victory is completely secure. I have dealt with the very worst that you will ever face. I have in fact been in that mess. In fact, I've been in a deeper mess than you have ever been. And I went into that deep mess for you. I have been in the hell that you will never face if you trust in me. I've been subsumed in the judgment that will never come your way if you trust in me. Dear child of mine, even in your pain or your confusion, he says, don't swap your feelings for the facts. Don't swap your feelings for the facts. Cancer cancer diagnosis, career disappointments, childcare disruption, COVID frustration, Don't be overtaken by what's happening to you now, but be filled with the knowledge of whose you are forever. May that be written in all of our minds and hearts today, believing friends. Don't be overtaken by what's happening to you now, but be filled with the knowledge of whose you are forever. God has fought for you. Don't forget him. 
Here's the second thing. When God speaks, don't turn away. This is a fairly brief point, but look at verse 6. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. You see, it's not enough to know that God has acted savingly in the past. It's got to impact what we do with the present. The Israelites were not to kick back and look out from their farmhouses and think, aren't we great? We must be really something for God to have given this to us. But as God saved people, they were called to listen to his voice and walk in his ways. Be careful, he says, to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning to the right or turning to the left. Now, before someone thinks, oh, here we go again, it all comes back to these archaic rules, these dusty old laws following a strict set of ancient commands that mean nothing to us today. In fact, that's why we're getting such a torrid time as Christians today, because we're being asked to follow a set of commands given thousands of years ago that seem out of date and don't sit well with this 21st century culture. Come on, David, surely these need updating and reconfiguring for this digital generation. I hear that often even from Christians every week. Yes, even from people in Union Road, I hear that regularly. Come on, we need to update a wee bit, you know, let go a bit of that. But that's forgetting everything we've just said. God saved his people, fought for his people, provided a new land for his people, crushed the enemy for his people, loved and protected his people. Does he not have the right to then give instructions to his people? He saves us by his grace first, and then he asks us to follow him. And you see, verse 11 tells us it all comes down to love. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. And how do you show commitment to your Savior? Some might say, oh, it's the way we praise David, the sound of our singing. It's the depth of our emotions when we do that on a Sunday. Others might say, it's sacrifice. It's the amount we do for God, all the organizations that we're involved in. That's an expression of love. Some might suggest commitment. David, I never miss. I'm a big payer inner to the congregation. I'm really devoted to God. I pray in the morning. I pray at night. And all those play a part. But what did Jesus say? John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. End of. If you love me, that'll be seen in how you obey me. Not how committed, or how sacrificial, or how often, but you obey me. I worked under two very different headmasters in my teaching career. One was a hands-on, hard-working, committed, driving minibuses, the football matches, never dodging the difficult parent, helping out in the dinner queue kind of principle. The other was all fun, completely through other, unpredictable, indecisive, and he was the kind of guy who always disappeared when you needed him most. I like both, and on a personal level, I got on with them both really well, but I know which one I'd have run through a wall for. I know which one was worth listening to. I know which one I obeyed when I was asked to do things that in my mind I thought, do you really need to do that? And it all came down to his love and respect for us as a staff and the pupils before us. And when it comes to our God, it's similar, isn't it? He has an unblemished track record. 
In fact, is there anyone easier to love than our God who has done all that is required for our good? And that's where our strength comes from in order to obey. The Israelites didn't need to turn the pages of the book of the law and ignore them or forget them. It was there. That was how they were to love and serve and obey. His works were evidence of his eternal commitment to them. So the call to obey makes sense. And when you stop and think about it, it's not too hard to submit to a Savior who's sacrificed himself for us. Thirdly, what God drives away, don't bring near. What God drives away, don't bring near. This third section is an outworking of obedience as Joshua's charge to his people deals with a brand new problem for Israel, but it's an age-old problem for us as Christians. Let's read it in verses 12 and 13. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Joshua was a very keen observer of human nature, and he anticipated the huge problems Israel was about to have in this area. You see, the people of the land, the remaining Canaanites that had not been driven out were idol worshippers. They were corrupt. That is why God ordered them destroyed, for he foresaw the problems to come. These grossly sinful people remained, and that was going to cause mayhem. And whilst we might feel sorry for these people in this book, wondering why God seems so harsh directing military campaigns directly against them, we suddenly see that the threat is real because the whole future of Israel and God's people is at stake. You see, when you worship false gods or no gods at all, your priorities and expectations of life are different, and you very quickly yourself become different. If you don't believe in God, then you can live as you please because you don't believe you're ever going to face judgment. Whereas if you believe in a God who needs paid off with sacrifices, you can live like so long as that the corner, little corner of your life is looked after, don't you? And some of us in Union Road are sitting in that position today. We think that's how you become a Christian. You pay off little bits to God. Give him this little corner, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That doesn't mean what, that doesn't mean you're a person of faith. That means you've got the wrong view of a wrong God. That's not the God we worship here in Union Road. You know, just doing your little bit, and then you let, let, let the less look after itself. And if you maybe need a big favor from from God, the bigger the sacrifice. And in the sadly in this opportunity of the Canaanites, their sacrifices, they even went to the extent of sacrificing their own children if they needed a big favor from God. Quite a few of us do sacrifice our children today in the sake of many things in life. But it's a slot machine salvation of the very worst kind. You know, you put a few pennies of commitment in and you pull the lever and you say, well, God, you owe me now. That's not how it works. Whilst if you believe in a God who helps you with crop growth and harvest, you have to play that out with the temple prostitute like an illustration of what you want, fertility, new life growth. And because it's sensual and appeals to the physical, it feels good. And this world hasn't changed, has it much? At heart, we all want the life. We all want faith. We all want the religion in which we feel good and receive big while still getting on and doing what we like. But here comes the stark warning over relationships of all sorts from the lips of Joshua. 
the danger before them was that they would become like the people they were to drive out. And with sadness, you don't need me to report to you today that by the end of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. Israel became like the people they were meant to drive out. And as a result, they were driven out of their land. And this is not reduced to the Old Testament Israelite problem. It was here in Corinth as well. Let's go back to Corinth for a moment. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 to 16 asks these questions on the screen. What fellowship can light have with darkness? What fellowship can Christ have with demons? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And so Christian friend here in Union Road today are watching on live stream, whether you're younger or older, seeking out friendships or relationships or companionship, acceptance and love amongst a group, or even in, in a longer term relationship, maybe you think you find Mr. Right or Miss Adorable. But if they're not believers, in fact, if they're not committed Christians, Joshua says, drop them. Drive them out of your life. And I say that lovingly because if you don't until the day you die, they will be like a snare and a trap and a whip in your back and a thorn in your eye. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of God from Joshua. Breaks my heart to think about it, but I could bring 15, 20 couples that I spent a lot of time with and pastoral experience over the last 15 years or so. I could give you exhibits A, B, C, D, and so on. And I could bring them before you today, a husband who married an unbelieving wife or a wife who married an unbelieving husband, and they will tell you of the pain that is theirs. It all looked fine, sounded great. He promised this or she promised that. And we agreed that even though we weren't on the same page spiritually, we would work something out. And they seek to fulfill their marriage vows, yes, but it's painful and heavy and burdensome. No matter how cool or how much money or what good crack or what similar interest, no matter how much he or she says they love you, if you are not married yet, don't marry them. Get out of it straight away. And I would say this even to Christian couples who are dating at the moment. And if one of you is very strong in your faith and wanting to push on, but if the other one is slow and sluggish at times, and you're not even too sure if they're saved, even then I'd say, stop it and end it. Because you see, it's not just about marriage here either, is it, in these verses? These verses are for every Christian who lives in this world, surrounded by the Canaanites of the 21st century. There will always be a temptation to go their way, to follow their call, to dance to their tune, because we don't like, let's face it, none of us like to look different. I'm going to use the message version of Romans 12, 1 and 2 on the screen to help us with this. This is what it says. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you develops well-formed maturity in you. I love that last little section. It's a bank holiday weekend. Some of you have a wee bit more time in your hands today and tomorrow. Let me ask you these questions. Even note them up here. No matter what stage you're at in life, ask yourself these questions today. I've asked myself these as I've prepared for this. Who in your life is dragging you down? Secondly, 
where are you immature and weak in your faith? Thirdly, what, where, or who do you need to avoid? And which part of your life has become more and more like everyone else round about you? Those are the questions you need to ask. Those are the questions I need to ask. Because those are the questions that Joshua asks. Those are the questions the Lord asks of us here in Union Road today. I read a great story this week. I think you'll appreciate this one. Two prowlers who'd made a crazy visit to an upmarket department store in America late one night. They came in, they did their business, and they left unnoticed. But they didn't steal a thing. Rather than rob, they pulled off on an ingenious prank, and I think this was what appeased to me. They took the stickers and barcodes codes off really expensive items and swapped them with much less expensive items. For example, a $5.95 tag for a paperback book was swapped for a $500 outboard motor. Expensive cameras went for the price of a stationary set. And the secret price tag switch reversed the value of every item in the store. And crazier still, it took four hours of trading the next morning before anyone noticed. Max Licato, a Christian writer, points out that a crazy distorted system of values bombards each of us every day that turns it on its head. We see the most valuable things in our lives peddled for pennies, and we see the cheapest smut go for millions. And that is true. This world has just been flipped on its head, hasn't it? The things of greatest value people disregard and laugh at and treat as nothing but the things that are worth eternally zero exchange for millions. The temptation for all of us is that we switch the cultural price tags for obedience and salvation and eternity. Won't you carve out a bit of time this bank holiday weekend to fix your attention back on God and the things of real value before it's too late? Time, commitment, obedience, consistency will prove whether someone's faith was genuine, not turning to the right or the left. Here's the last thing as we finish. God gives what is good. Don't choose what's bad. That's how Joshua finishes out in verses 14 to 16. Obedience brings blessing, he says here. Disobedience brings cursing. This is what he leaves us with. We might think, well, that's for the Israelites for you, isn't it? They were always faltering, but we can't sit back from our crowd Christian, Christian perspective, can we? We read these verses, and we're left with a choice. There's one character in the New Testament that comes to my mind straight away. He's a man that doesn't get much coverage, but what we read about him is fascinating. He's a man called Demas. Demas was mentioned in glowing terms by Paul in the New Testament and appears to have been involved as a missionary with Paul for a time. In fact, in the book of Philemon, verse 24, he is mentioned as Paul's fellow worker. And then in Colossians 4, verse 14, he's mentioned as a dear colleague alongside Dr. Luke. But sadly, in Paul's last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he writes this, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Oh, Demas. He was so full of potential. 
He'd even been on mission trips with Paul. But his departure devastated Paul. I've stood with some of you. And some of you have stood with me in difficult days gone by on outreach and stuff that's been going locally as well as around the rest of Ireland. Don't be a Demas. Don't let the world get into you and suck the life out of you and turn you around. William Barclay put it like this. The years have a great way of taking our ideals away of making us satisfied with less and less, of lowering our standards. There is no threat so dangerous as the threat of years to man's ideals. I weep when I sometimes bump into friends who were on the outreach committee at Strandmillis during my time there. I get very sad when I hear of friends who who were on the the executive committee organizing big events to reach out to the the student community and they're nowhere now. The years have impacted them. They've got comfortable. They've let the world change them. They've become so short-sighted and they love the present world more than the Savior. The word that Joshua uses most of his Lord in these closing verses. Do you see it? Even just have a quick look down there. Verses 14. What word does he use of God more than anything else? It's a simple word, but it's a great word. It's the word good. He says it at least four times. Good God. Good promises. But divine, divine disaster would strike if God's people walked away from his goodness. Some of you know I love C.S. Lewis's writing. And I'm so grateful for a couple in church who have bought this for me not long after I came here and we've got it up in in the months. It's a picture of Aslan. Aslan, that great lion who represents the Savior. And there's a great quote. Who said anything about sin? Of course he's not sin. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Folks, God is not safe. He's not safe. But he is good. At the end of time, he will either gather you to himself because you're one of his, or he'll send you away because you refused to bow the knee to him. We do not have a tame, safe God who can be messed about with, but one who is faithful to save, but he's also faithful in sending away. His threats are not empty gobbledygook, but he is holy. When God's people gathered and heard this, as you step into chapter 24, verses 23 and 24, he said, throw away your foreign gods and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people as one said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord and we will obey him. God has fought for you. Don't forget him. When God speaks, don't turn away. What God drives away, don't bring near. God gives what is good. Don't choose what's bad. Let's pray together. 
gracious God, we thank you for these gracious, faithful words of a man who had followed you faithfully throughout his life, knowing you to be a good God whose good promises never fail, one who had seen in his life the fact that you had promised things and he saw them fulfilled, the one who knew that throughout those long and difficult and demanding years, even wandering in deserts and wondering whether you would ever fulfill what you said, you are good, and your love endures forever. God, you are not safe, but you are good, for you are God. So may we heed your word, thanking and praising you today that you have fought for us, that you've spoken to us, You've driven evil away and you've crushed Satan and sin and death and hell. So, Lord, why should we turn to those things again? May we rather adore you and serve you and love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because you have loved us first. Lord, receive our thanks, accept our praise. And may we follow your way. Amen.